Hi, welcome to Vestad Podcast. This is me, Alex. I'm here, as always, with Jesus. Hello, welcome everybody to this new uh, podcast. Today we have a very special guest who is going to be joining us and giving us her opinion on these very different issues and her expertise. Uh, please introduce yourself. Hi everybody, um, I am a medical student and I am by no means claiming that um, I'm an expert in this field. I'm just a person who is very curious, who tries to stay as informed as she can by reading all this information, all the scientific data that is available at the moment and not just by blindly trusting all the mass media. And I try to avoid personal bias as much as possible. So, um, you mentioned to us today that you didn't want to specifically say uh, what your name is and stuff. And you gave me some very interesting reasons why you decided to do this. I wonder if you perhaps could expand a little bit on this uh, before we continue. Um, my main concern is that Corona has become such a controversial topic that most scientists who um, express opinions that might not be in, in the government line or might not represent the official opinion, which is represented by the scientists covered by the mass media, um, that it definitely does. They are a demonized and criticized, and sometimes as critic is much more uh, sometimes substantial and objective, but mostly it's personal, and it also has backfired for most of them in terms of their academic or uh, professional careers. And uh, this is also my worry that it might somehow, um, um, you know, endanger my academic path or future career. Yeah, so I, I also um, heard in the news that there were some uh, YouTube videos that were taken down because they didn't apply to the official way of thinking about this. And when I see this, my, my first think of the first, my first thought about this is that in some way it is a restriction of freedom of speech. And in a certain way, it's a way of, of shaming different opinions and of um, extracting them from, from public discourse, which I found very damaging. Uh, could you perhaps also expand on your knowledge about this? Um, I certainly agree with you. And the main problem is even the UN secretary said that this crisis is the biggest human rights crisis that this world has ever seen. And uh, this policy by YouTube, um, which was introduced by YouTube's CEO, is ridiculous because it just says that everything that somehow um, that doesn't comply with uh, official World Health Organization uh, recommendations it will be treated as misinformation, it will be deleted. This is a not a healthy scientific debate because obviously World Health Organization changes their recommendation every single week and you can see it with, for example, them announcing in January saying that there is no human-to-human -human transmission of um, COVID uh, or let's say uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, if you say the official name. Um, then they changed it and say there is human to human transition. They, let's say, first criticized Sweden for its response. Two days ago, um, World Health um, Crisis Expert said that um, they think Sweden is an example of how to um, address this uh, extraordinary crisis situation, which means that um, World Health Organization regulation might change, and that's why it's um, ineffective and it's actually uh, dangerous to. Uh, attack on human rights rights and our freedom of speech by just deleting everything indifferently. Of course, there is a danger of misinformation, but also we have to rely on the citizens to be able to learn how to sort 
proper information from misinformation when you just play a stupid like you when you just delete everything that doesn't um does not get covered let's say by the mass media you are actually awaking more fear and awake more uh, speculations because then your own citizens think that the government has something to hide from us and they're more um actually they're more eager to um let's say actually um become like consume this fake information yeah i think um, freedom of speech is, is one of the pillars uh, you need to to solve this crisis or um any crisis to to make any um improvements in our lives uh, or in the ideas uh, we have and uh it's it's not a recent discovery. We we know this that that freedom of speech is is really important uh, to make advancements in in the culture, and it's it's just bad enough if you don't have freedom of speech. But even if you restrict it by ever changing guidelines that change on a week to week basis, that's even worse. And of course, if you demonize scientists that just think differently to the majority. It doesn't necessarily mean that these scientists are wrong. And we've seen it in the history again and again with cholera, for example. John Snow, who said straight away that's probably water transmit transmitted by water. He was demonized. He was thought as a crazy person. At the end of the day, like it uh, has been proven that he, had, he was uh, right. The same with people who um, discovered Helicobacter pyrrhi and said that it's actually the bacteria that causes um, stomach ulcers. They actually had to ingest this bacteria to prove to the scientific community that this is legit the cause of the disease. And we've seen it again and again. It's not a healthy situation where you restrict scientists, where you demonize them for having different opinions. I'm not talking about people who spread conspiracy theories. I'm talking about scientists who just say, hey, hang on a minute. We have new data. The previous data was lacking. It was like... It didn't have all the information that we needed. We now have more information. We have now more knowledge, and we have to continue to rethink our strategies. And that's what a healthy science, like a healthy scientific debate, is. And science should not become politics. And sadly, it is the case right now. Yeah, ironically, by those who speak in favor of science are exactly the ones who actually distort science by making it a political issue. Yeah, exactly. Ironically, yeah. Yeah, uh, you even um, mentioned that. Scientists here in Germany are uh, losing their jobs or being fired uh, when they speak out or have um, our opinions. So far, the scientists that have spoken out in Germany were either like who were openly criticized some of the measures. I'm not talking about again extreme examples, but let's say there is this virologist from Bonn, Streeck. Uh, he, thank God, hasn't been fired, but uh, his Heinsberg study, which is not perfect, and there is no um, manuscript as of today yet, but um, he was severely criticized for making his like statement saying that he thinks this um, very strict lockdown wasn't necessary. Um, other scientists were either retired, so they had nothing to worry about, or um, there was a scientist who occupied a pretty senior position, and after his controversial statements uh, I actually googled it and I could see that he was um, replaced indefinitely it's basically until further notice until mm -hmm. whilst they're investigating whether they should keep him well. and I mean this is not freedom of speech when people lose their jobs 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's very well put. Yeah. Well, uh, yes. To 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 go to to another point, uh, we we already touched on it as um, how serious really is this uh, coronavirus, and we see from the beginning. Uh, people uh, generally people were saying oh this is not a problem we don't have to worry about and they, they were like downplaying it then suddenly it became a really huge issue and all the countries had to shut down close their borders close their schools and uh, but I guess right now we we have more data to uh, really uh, know um, how serious really is this coronavirus? How deadly? Um, I think you you have read a lot about this. Um. So um, I guess here we should start by saying that uh, initial models that were um, built by let's say Imperial College, one of the most influential models, predicted that there will be at least two million deaths uh, from the virus. In- even if you impose a very strict lockdown. The reason why it was so apocalyptic was because it was based on the Italian scenario. The reason why Corona um, escalated so much in Italy um, is a multidimensional problem. First of all, they have an aging population. Um, Second of all, uh, they have the highest rate of antibiotic resistance and uh, nosocomial infections, nosocomial being infections which were acquired in the hospital. And that's also one of the things that most of the scientists are concerned about, that perhaps a big proportion of the uh, patients in the ICUs don't actually die from corona itself, but also acquire secondary infections, bacterial infections, and develop sepsis not due to corona, but Perhaps it's again, it's not researched at the moment still, but um, also Italy has only 10,000 ICU beds, whereas Germany has uh, more than 40,000. And uh, Italy is the country where the most common household type is a three generation household where elderly people live together with small children and their, uh, and their children, which means um, the infection rate and also the transmissibility is much higher than, let's say, in Sweden, where seniors mostly live alone or separately from their children and from their grandchildren. And, uh, of course, um, it also highlights, again, the point that corona is definitely not a dangerous virus when you have a healthcare system which is not overwhelmed. And that was the initial message about uh, the whole uh, all the measures that will have to flatten the curve. Um, and I guess the most representative study in terms of uh, corona mortality could be the Princess Diana, uh, Diamond case study. It was a ship which was um, quarantined near the Japanese shores for two weeks, where due to the fact that it created the perfect environment for the virus to spread, as it was a limited amount of space, a big group of people, albeit People were, um, most, most tourists on the ship were above the age of 60, which means that most tourists on the ship were actually in the risk group. And even there, where the majority of infected people were in the risk group, the mortality rate ended up being 1%. Of course, uh, with a, uh, in a, in a situation where the healthcare system was not overwhelmed, which, sh- we can use as an example to see that it's actually probably not a dangerous virus or most likely not a dangerous virus for the majority of the population and um, also the example the, the, the apparent differences between western europe and eastern europe the reason why the mortality rates are so different 
And it's also something that most scientists are finding finding perplexing and what we need to research further because it definitely does not uh, have a lot to do with the quarantine measures as uh, all these countries adopted different quarantine measures and it's not the case that let's say Eastern Europe has adopted more uh, like stricter measures compared to Western Europe but rather it must be something else that has to do with the fact that the mortality rate and the situation is much better in Eastern Europe. Yeah, so I, what, you, what you implicitly mentioned there is basically that it was a study that was really good because it looked at older people. And we have always heard that the older peoples are the ones who are actually at risk of dying from the virus or of having severe symptoms from the virus. Um, but also many people have also said, well, but I mean, young people are also dying, right? So I know that the Tiger Show, I think that a couple of weeks ago or one week ago, uh, it showed, you know, different pictures of, of young people who... Basically saying, yeah, you know, I'm also at risk and, you know, young people are also dying. So they would sort of present this as if it was also a serious apparent risk for people who are young. So my question to you would be, how would you evaluate that? Are young people really at risk or would you differentiate uh, between young people and and old people? Um, What mass media tends to do, it tends to take anecdotal evidence. So anecdotal meaning it's individual cases and generalize it to the whole population. Um, of course, every single rule has, um, um, there are like exceptions to every single rule and there are people, young people dying from other diseases that they're not supposed to be dying. Uh, but the majority of cases, uh, for example, most most of these uh, stories actually are coming from America, but uh, even American doctors are saying that most young people who died in America were severely over, overweight. Overweight meaning they're probably having hypertension and they're having diabetes. All of these uh, conditions that are contributing to the risk factors and um, contributing to the risk of actually developing a severe COVID-19 disease. At the same time, um, one has to say that there are also some cases where young people with no predisposition predispositioning conditions were dying, but there most people agree, most scientists in the scientific community agree that it probably has to do with the viral viral load. So let's say if they were in a situation where they inhaled a lot of the virus at one given time, it might be the case that they will develop a more severe condition than most of us will, because if we get infected, we will probably get infected in the community and we won't get the chance to actually inhale a significant amount of the virus. Yeah, um, the other thing we hear a lot about is, well, yes, um, this virus is serious, but what's even more, uh, what's even worse is that it could mutate and it could become deadlier and uh, then then everything would be a chaos. So that's why we need all these measures. Um, What do you know about that? Um, leading virologists um, are uh, similar in their opinion that they say that if it will mutate, it will most likely become less deadly because it's evolutionary advantageous for the virus to become less deadly as when it kills its host, it cannot spread properly. Whereas what we um, can expect with COVID-19 or let's say SARS-CoV-2 virus is that it will over time mutate, become less deadly and will... um, come and we will we'll reintroduce itself again and again in our community in the form of common cold virus, what already happens uh, with uh, other coronaviruses that circulate every year and um, let's say flu viruses and adenoviruses.
Okay, so from what we have been discussing until now, we have been discussing sort of the how serious this coronavirus is. Uh, we have seen how the statistics that were used at the beginning were based on the case of Italy, which, as you explained, correct me if I'm saying something wrong, was not necessarily representative of the actual numbers that go in hand with the disease. We have seen uh, other studies that seem to be better and more representative. And now that we have sort of looked at this uh, in general, uh, my question to you would be, as a general question, could there have been another way? Right? So could we have solved this uh, crisis or made other measures that would perhaps have um, been more effective? So one of the measures or one of the proposals that I have heard a lot, and that also has been discussed in, in, in public media, in the Tagesschau, was also discussed, was the idea that if there is a group that has a high risk and there's another group that does not have as high as a, ri a risk, like young people with no pre-existing conditions, why then should we simply uh, impose special restrictions or give special care to those who are really in danger, but not on the ones who are young and healthy individuals? What do you think about the proposal of separating these two groups or, or treating them differently uh, when challenging this corona crisis? So, um, of course, now we have the benefit of the hindsight and we can look back and see what we did wrong. And uh, a lot of countries come to the conclusion that even though it does sound a bit um, say demeaning in some way, but it would have make, made more sense to actually protect the most vulnerable, so people in care homes. Instead of shutting down the entire economy, what we should have done is uh, actually isolate the care homes, shut them down, forbid the visitors, and also ask the nurses and all the personnel working in the houses to, let's say, stay there permanently for four weeks. Of course, not unpaid. They would. Um, they should have gotten benefits. They should have gotten a much bigger salary than they normally get, uh, because obviously they are then uh, on the front line of such an extraordinary situation. But if we could have contained it in within the space of care homes, we could have allowed it to spread within the community, not having to worry about the high mortality rate, not having to worry about the overwhelmed healthcare services. Of course, you have a big proportion of all the people living outside of community um, of care homes, but we still see that the biggest problem, and um, let's say we can use Sweden or UK as an example, the big, like in the UK. Only in healthcare, also in um, uh, care homes, 7,000 people died since the beginning of the outbreak, and maybe even more. In Sweden, out of a bit more than 2,000 people who died, uh, the majority of the cases were in care homes. It was people who didn't have a high life expectancy. They, there is such a term in statistics and epidemiology is called numbers of uh, years lost to disease. So even with corona, we actually don't see a lot of years lost to disease because the, the people who died already had a really low life expectancy, expectancy, but it still shows that there could have been a better way to protect them. And now we do realize our mistake and we can learn it from the future. In terms of shutting down schools, which most countries done, um, let's, again, we have to say see, Sweden and South Korea took a risk back in the day. Now we have more data. Uh, there's this really great um, study on Lancet. It's a meta-analysis of uh, of the impact of shut of uh, closed schools in Asia, and this study showed that um, shutting schools could 
contributed to a slow, uh, slowing down the spread of the virus only by 2%, whereas the negative aspects of shut schools, both socioeconomic aspects, the fact that children were left without education, the fact that most people forget that most children do not actually, like, we are the privileged few that have access to computers, whereas most children do not have access to computers. Um, furthermore, some children are living in abusive households where they before had an opportunity to use their teachers as their trusted people and have some sort of social protection from their teachers and from their um, households. And all of these impacts are now becoming apparent. And this data shows that actually children do not, whilst they can't get infected, they do not show the symptoms. And even immunocompromised children do not get um, severely ill, according to the recent statement by NICE, which is uh, NICE is an English healthcare um, uh, facility which uh, issues uh, guidelines for all the practicing doctors, which also means that countries like um, Switzerland, for example, have allowed uh, kids below the age of 10 to see their grandparents and hide their, uh, hug their grandparents because the more data that we have, the more data uh, shows that children are not the endangering, the, the mm. speedy virus transmitters, which is normally the case, let's say, with uh, flu. Yeah, I just wanted one more thing before Alex uh, can ask you the next question. You mentioned very, very briefly um, the concept of uh, years lost to disease. And I think that's very interesting because the normal way in which this is presented is simply how many people died. But it seems like from this concept that you're using of years lost to disease, you're differentiating right between dying at different points in time, which I think is uh, very reasonable. Uh, why do you think this is not being talked about? I mean, this is the first time that I have been <laughs> heard about that. Um, I think it's... Um... The problem is because as soon, as soon as you use this concept, which is a valid epidemiological concept, people start blaming you for not being empathetic. But it is not an issue of empathy because, of course, we have to be empathetic. Of course, um, we as doctors or we, like as people, you don't have yeah. to be a doctor to feel sorry for a life lost, to feel sad and depressed about someone dying. Um, but if you're talking about population and if you're talking about measures which apply to the entire population, you unfortunately do have to make some very uncomfortable decisions. Mm -hmm. You have to make some controversial decisions. You have to think about the broader risk for the population. And that's why you apply this concept of years lost to disease. Disease, that's how um, actually people who, let's say, are responsible for the finance part of the healthcare decide whether um, if you are living in a welfare, a welfare state like Germany, whether it is worth for the government to sponsor a certain medication or sponsor a certain treatment. So they look at the benefits of this every single treatment and see whether this, um, let's say there is a certain disease and because of this disease, people's life expectancy decreases. And you have to see uh, by how much does it decrease and this is called years lost to disease. Mm -hmm. um, and whether it's worth to, let's say, sponsor a, spe a specific drug which will uh, increase their life expectancy. Okay. So well, we already also, use it. So it's nothing new. We already use it all the no, time. We use it all the time. We oh, use okay. it to okay. allocate, um, let's say, government resources for healthcare. Yeah. And well, I think what this also says is that we don't live in a one-dimensional world where you only can die of one 
uh, disease. No, that's not the case. You can die, die of, of many things. And so it doesn't make sense to only th see one disease, coronavirus, and um, and expect people only to die from this. But you have to see the, the whole picture. And okay, maybe we save lives uh, from from coronavirus, but that may have unintended consequences where we lose more lives on another end. And I, I can expect uh, more um, depressions or um, suicides rates. This is, for example, already happening with all uh, oncological patients. So all people have cancer. Their treatment have, have been postponed indefinitely, whereas with there are also all the other elective treatments that have been postponed. The main issue is being, um, let's say, with um, abortion. You only mm -hmm. have a certain time in which you can abort a child. Yeah. It's also mm -hmm. a controversial talk, but if you're saying about the woman's like a free right to decide, you are taking away this free right to decide because a month later she might not be able to abort anymore. Well. Whereas with like, cancer patients, their treatment is day sensitive. It's not just months sensitive or year sensitive. Um, the longer they don't receive their treatment, the higher the chances that they will die. Hmm. And a lot of people have to be operated immediately. They have to get uh, chemotherapy immediately. It's not that they can wait for two months or three months. Or two years. Or two years, yeah, yeah, until the yeah. vaccine comes around. Yeah, and we mentioned this on the, on the last episode, and I just want to comment this. Like, uh, the, these people, they, they also paid for the healthcare system, and they of have course. a right to use it. And now take that right away is also very unfair because they paid for it. And also, you, um, there is a really nice, uh, good statistic for every 1% of unemployment, you have to expect 1% of uh, increase of suicides, you have to expect 1.7% more heart attacks, and especially right now, uh, we see a spike of uh, people dying from heart attacks and strokes because so many people were A, scared off from going to hospital because they think hospital is mm -hmm. Um, stay empty for COVID-19 patients. Mm. Uh, second of all, is it could also be a purely to this um, emotional um, distress that they're facing at the moment. Sure. Because most people, we don't see the end of the tunnel. No one knows when this will end. Mm. People are losing their job. People, um, especially people who are now were supposed to go uh, into retirement. Their retirement is going to get probably the money that they're being paid by the government is probably going to be cut. Youngest yeah. people who are just about to graduate from universities and go to um, labor markets, they also have no jobs. So we'll definitely see a much greater number of people having some mental disease. And um, there is such concept in medicine, which is a proven thing. Uh, it's called psychosomatic medicine. It's basically when your emotional distress get transferred into proper um, physical problems, which mm. have like a proper pathophysiology. Let's say that your mm. actually your health condition decreases. Yeah, yeah. Not decreases. I think it um, becomes worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, if uh, if you really no, I think it's it's irresponsible to to put a such a big of a measure like like the ones we have and to justify it on the benefits so no we want to save lives from coronavirus and not uh seeing the effects or the in the unintended effects it has that's that's irresponsible in my view uh -huh. and uh if you you spend that amount of resources 
and uh, destroy <laughs> so many, well, uh, or at the very least, take so, so much freedom from people. I think the problem is also um, uh, what most politicians face is that, I don't think they're idiots, I think they understand the long-term impact of their um, of their me- of all these measures, but and of course, uh, people tend to believe on the um, short-term impact. Mm-hmm. So the argument is, we're going to save a couple of lives here. No, I'm right just now. over sim- simplifying it a bit, of course. Yeah. And um, I'm not trying to be like cynical. So I'm just stating uh, things as it is. And um, none of the politicians want to stay in history as a person who killed everyone's grandparents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though. On in long term, it will be the like we will not remember them, them as people who caused financial depression, who mm. caused a spike of suicides, a spike of other healthcare conditions, yeah. because this will be spread out over the course of the next ten, twenty years. Yeah, yeah, but I I think we 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 should look for that for the other uh, consequences uh, consequences these measures had and and also hold them responsible for it. Um, but well, yeah, now to to continue. Um, at the beginning, the the initial mes- message uh, we heard when the lockdowns began was that um, we have to flatten the curve and so that the healthcare systems don't be overwhelmed. But we will use this time to expand the the capacities and then be prepared when the real um, Spike. Yeah, wave comes uh, with Corona um, issues, and uh, but but right now that the message seems to have shifted. Right now, they want to to maybe open a little bit um, the lockdown, but we are waiting for the vaccine to be developed and mass produced. Um, yeah, what what do you think about that? That's a biggest, we think one of the biggest issues because um, in the time that the lockdown has been enforced, so it's almost two months now, uh, at least in Germany, we actually did have the time to uh, expand the healthcare facilities. We have a lot of free ICU beds. So far, the last two months, the healthcare system has been underwhelmed, actually. A lot of hospitals um, have sent their, like, their workers home. They were receiving benefits from the government because they didn't have work to do. Whereas right now, um, the issue, the message about the vaccine, um, which is being spread by most politicians, also false because it's not given that there will be a vaccine. Vaccines are great things, and if they're tested properly, they've saved a lot of lives. But vaccine development normally takes at least five years. Um, okay, of course there is uh, government, like government officials saying, let's speed up. Uh, the vaccine regulation process. Let's just make sure that we have a vaccine. Who cares if it's not tested properly? However, this is the most dangerous way of thought as you, uh, that you can adopt because um, for most p- part of the population, this uh, the threat from this virus is negligible. Of course, we don't know the long-term impact yet, but the short-term, people seem to get over this reaction and they don't, at the moment, seem to have any long-term damage. Whereas from a properly tested vaccine, people can develop autoimmune diseases, people can develop adverse reactions, they could develop extremely overshooting immune responses, or they could even die, which was the case with the first polio uh, vaccine trial, where 
nine out of ten children died from the vaccine and not from the disease, which is that's horrible. Yeah. yeah, something that a lot of people, not people, a lot of politicians tend to forget, and um, a lot of scientists who say that are being then demonized, saying that they are spreading the wrong message. But it's not going. We tried to develop a vaccine for flu, and yet it's only about forty to sixty percent effective um, when. Uh, we get the mutation, right? When the mutation is wrong, then something like 2017 flu epidemic happens where a lot of people get ill because the vaccine is not effective. Mm. Well, that's something you, you hear. You hear the vaccine will be ready in one year and it will, do, and it will work perfectly. Or that's... I, yeah. I, 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 no one least. has that because yeah. not even Bill Gates or the best scientists in the world can tell you whether there will be a corona um, vaccine yeah and i think this this way of thinking like we need to speed it up it's strange right as if i don't know we we were making an assembly line and you just sort of put more people in and just speed up the the way in which the assembly moves but no i mean this this is not something you just speed up right it's a difficult process of finding things out you don't know when it's going to be found out perhaps never right and so also it, the issue let's say a lot of people who develop severe COVID 19 disease um It's, it is thought that it's potentially due to immune over-response that is called cytokine storm. And um, vaccines are programmed in a way to promote immune response. So if we've, like, we need to research it further, but if we find out, let's say, that most people get, like, people who get severely ill get ill not because of the virus itself, but rather from this overshooting immune response, maybe by administering vaccine which speeds up this overshooting in oh, response okay. it will be actually counterproductive hmm. and you don't want to let's say drive a car which has not been tested properly you don't want to drive a car without brakes hmm. yeah so yeah no i don't want to do it now yeah, yeah. or uh, at, the, at, the, at the very least um, you you can have it as as an option that may be available in one year But it's not certain, and it's not the only one. Of course, and, it's and something we shouldn't just rely on a vaccine. We should adopt, yeah. uh, like we should change our thinking and try to find new, more creative solutions to this yeah. unique problem. Yeah, but it, it's strange that it's presented like the, like the savior, yeah. the hero, the vaccine coming in one year. <laughs> yeah. So um, another measure that that has been talked around I, i find it's very interesting um this measure was about wearing masks uh, in supermarkets shop and public transports and shops and the idea is, is this is going to prevent the virus from spreading i also find it very interesting the way in which it's presented when it's presented as if you have a responsibility to your fellow man and to yourself it's not to protect you you know it's to protect others right and we have to you know stand together and, and wear these masks But I've also heard, I mean, critics saying that these masks don't really are that effective. So I would ask you, from, from the papers that you have read, from your knowledge, do you think these masks are effective at preventing the uh, spread of the virus? So World Health Organization guidelines, as well as guidelines issued by public health officials in Sweden, let's say in the UK, say that after analyzing all the available data, they say that masks should be reserved to the healthcare professionals and also people who are symptomatic. Um, for asymptomatic uh, people, there is almost, there are absolutely no studies that were performed in the community setting. There are a small amount of studies that were performed in the clinical setting and even in the clinical setting, the results um, 
are quite non-optimistic because they show that in the best case scenario, let's say if we use flu as an example, because you, there are no studies that um, cover COVID-19 disease or COVID-SARS-2 virus, um, they show that um, the maximum spread slow, uh, you can slow down the spread of the virus or you can decrease the spread of the virus in the clinical setting is by a 6%, which is almost on the, it was on the borderline with being uh, statistically insignificant. And a lot of politicians um, try to advocate this measure by saying it's not uh, the lack of evidence, it's evidence of lack, that they're using precautionary measure, that they're doing something that could potentially help. However, they do not take into account the dangerous aspects of this measure, the fact that most people are incapable of um, using, like so disposing of masks properly, of actually applying proper hygiene uh, measures when they use it in the community. Because first of all, we don't have proper bins where we throw it away. Because mask is, after being worn by a person, mask is just completely... Like it absorbs all the possible pathogens, the viruses, bacteria, and fungi that this person had um, in their mouth or on their skin around their mouth, which means that mask A could potentially become transmitters of the virus themselves because most people just throw them away in the normal bin or don't even throw them away, they just put in their pocket. Of course, forget to wash the hands and then touch everything, which means their hands are like contaminated with the virus. Second of all, a big aspect is self contamination. Uh, masks for uh, above all uh, community masks, this like do do it yourself mask. Um, they create perfect warm, humid conditions, which one study has shown seven minutes is enough to increase the amount of bacteria and fungi present on your skin by eighty percent. And that was in the clinical setting using a surgical mask. So if you're using comedic cloth mask, this might this number might have been much bigger, which means. Um, this potentially pathogenic, which are opportunistic bacteria, which normally on your skin are not dangerous as long as they're outside your body. But if you're wearing mask, it means that you could potentially inhale them and actually contaminate yourself and get ill because of staphylococcus or some other fungi spores, which is something that's almost ignored by uh, all the politicians. So, and third of all, the point which a week ago I thought wasn't probably the main point of concern um, but now I see like from anecdotal evidence of course when I go shopping when I go somewhere I see that people who wear masks they just immediately assume they're invincible which is not the case because there's nothing better than washing your hands and just keeping the distance and they forget to keep the distance and they forget the fact that masks might potentially prevent you from spreading your uh, microbes to other person and distance is something that actually does it and actually does prevent you from doing it. Yeah, I don't know about you, Alex, but I have almost an university degree, and I'm pretty sure I don't use the mask properly. So um, <laughs> it makes me very skeptical. I use the mask properly when I work in the hospital during my part-time job. But even I personally, and I know all of my friends who also work in the hospital, say that in the community, when I go shopping, it's impossible to use it properly because as soon as I leave the, uh, the shop and I want to take it off, I have an issue. I don't know where to throw it away. I don't know where I can wash my hands. And I don't know how, like, of course, I also, I don't have an indefinite um, supply of masks. So I also have to be wary and have to wear the same mask for multiple times. And uh, if I'm wearing the, the cloth mask, I'm 
not able to use the washing machine with one mask every single day because frankly I'm trying to be savvy with water and electricity and I can't just use one washing machine 24-7 and I think that applies to all people yeah again it's not that people are uh, stupid and incapable of using them no it's just that it's impossible in in, in these conditions and also it's because you really have to get yourself like trained not to touch the mask, let's say, whilst you're mm. wearing it, which mm. all the people are doing. And also you can't mm. just, let's say, you have a smoke, take it off, smoke, and then put it back on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, see that. I see that every time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if you do that, you have to use a new mask because you contaminated your hands and you contaminated the mask. So, yeah. And that's the problem. It's just impossible to do that. In so so it's, it's a fairy tale. That's a fairy tale. Again, yeah. we, we see a measure justified on the unknown potential benefits it might bring without considering all the unintended or just the other consequences if you use it improperly or yeah or, or even the, the costs this brings how, how costly is it to produce that many masks and I, I don't know if it's true but I would guess that as you said you need these masks in in the hospitals the doctors need of course, it uh, the if you... respirators uh, which are the only effective type of uh, let's say proven type of protection of course they have to be reserved to the medical personnel and probably people who are actually at risk of getting the virus because it's the only uh, type of protection which can actually provide you protection from the virus just not only not spread it but also not get it from other people and that's what i think it's like a more sensible idea to sell people who are immunocompromised uh, compromised people who have diabetes to actually get prescriptions let's say and that for them to be able to buy these kind of respirators mm. in the um, like in pharmacy stores, let's say. Whereas um, for us, it's just really a pure waste of time, which also could be uh, quite an unhygienic measure, which could potentially cause more problem than it mm. actually mm. solves. Yeah, I think uh, we're getting to the end of this episode, and then I would say we. Um, give our conclusions yeah so to conclude uh, I think that one point that you stress a lot was the point of, of scientific freedom right of not demonizing other scientists of, of letting them cooperate uh, what would be your concluding message when it comes to that what would you advise people what attitude should people take when discussing these issues I think first of all flow of ideas and freedom of speech is very important because only when you have a lot of people from all different fields cooperating and trying to come up with a solution you can come up with a solution that will address most of the issues. Of course you will never find like you will never have one fits all, fits all approach. Uh, but you have to be ready to make compromise in such a difficult situation. Also, I guess uh, what's important, we have to learn how to be proactive and not reactive and uh, in the f- for the future, especially taking account that we will be facing other pandemics in the future, we have to do something before the crisis he- hits. And also, we shouldn't blame anyone or find scapegoats like, let's say, Trump is doing with uh, saying the Chinese virus, <laughs> saying yeah. who is, of course, Everyone is a bit to blame for the escalation of the virus because obviously we don't we just don't have enough knowledge to be able to address it perfectly straight away. But we can learn from our mistakes and we can improve. Uh, and I think it's important, um, and I think you guys will agree with me, is um, that people tend to oversimplify this issue and say, okay, it's the question of 
economy versus healthcare, which is not the case because um, if you forget about the economy, say, ah, oh, okay, whatever, screw the economy, you then have a greater risk of, like, a greater rate of poverty, and a greater rate of poverty leads to more disease, leads to uh, worse um, underfunded, let's say, healthcare system, which means that this healthcare system can um, be less effective in taking care of the patients. And not just corona patients, but everyone. Yeah, no, for, from, from my economic understanding, and here I would refer you to the last episode that we made, uh, which was about especially this effects of the measures taken by the government, the corona crisis, on the economic effect that this has. And just to simply, you know, brief it together, it's really bad, right? So uh, the finance minister of Germany already stated that they predict that GDP is going to fall by 7.4%, I think was the statistics. So I would just simply say, yeah, I mean, this it's inseparable health and economics. It's not one versus the other. If there is no economic activity, if you don't produce, if you don't have hospitals, th- why are you talking about health? You know, this is a consequence of the fact that we produce. So you cannot have one without the other. And it's exactly because we have such economic advantage and such we're so rich in the Western world that we can even have these discussions and take all of these measures. So to pretend as if people are evil because they care about the economic impact is absurd, right? If you care about people, if you care about life, then you should be primarily concerned. You should be a very important issue to think about economics because they are the tools that allow you to actually save people's lives. So it's, I think it's irresponsible uh, to present this as if it was health versus economics. No. It's economics and through economics and through our work, through the resources, we can also uh, have a very uh, wonderful health impacts and try to actually protect people from COVID-19. Yeah, and uh, I, this was something we had mentioned before recording the podcast and it is that um, right now we need to be very flexible on the strategies we are using and it's precisely because we don't have the uh, amount, we don't have all the information we need to make the perfect decisions. So we need to wait until the data comes and then react to that data and see what strategies we implement. Um, but for that, we need freedom of speech so that we know, okay, what what's the whole spectrum of the different strategies we can use, at what cost comes each of them, and uh, which are more effective, which are less. And then, then okay, we, we try one strategy, maybe for a week, two weeks, um, see until the data comes and then we see if we want to change it or or not. And um, the only way to do that is, is to really have a, a discussion about all the different strategies and the costs. And maybe uh, you see a strategy that's perfect for you, but uh, maybe someone else discovers some flaws or um, some unintended consequences of, the, of these and... Uh, you just need to have that that discussion and also i know i find it uh, on a personal note uh, quite strange to just shut people down i I imagine you would do that on a a discussion you would have with a friend uh, or like this like Mm -hmm. you you don't agree with what i'm saying right now and i just say yeah shut up (laughs) or i take your microphone away that's that's not a way and i lock you up in your house (laughs) Yeah, yeah That's not a way you would ever react um, to to your friends, to your colleagues. Um, but why would it be okay the, the government reacting that way? 
and um, it, it's also uh, a defeat for yourself because if you know you're right, uh, if, if you have reason on your side, if you have the facts, then you're okay with anyone saying just stupid things because you know you can very properly explain to anyone who uses his mind that this other person is wrong and you can explain to him all the uh, logical steps you, you need to take to get to the conclusion you have. Uh, but if you just shut them down, if you say, no, you can't even talk to, to them, um, that's a defeat for, for you. You're saying um, either you're not capable of proving the wrong or you're saying all the people are stupid and nobody is able to use reason. So I, I have to forbid them to uh, listen to um, other opinions who uh, which might seem um, persuasive. Yeah, so I don't know what if you would like to make your uh, final uh, comment or conclusion or to wrap up what you think people should take away from the discussion we have been having today. Um, I think it's just to always stay critical and try to actually avoid forming an opinion too soon and try to actually um, get the information from as many sources as possible and not just read, let's say, one like Turkish shower to the earth and sing again or everything and just always be critical and ask what is necessary what is not necessary and not and always try to make it yourself clear that it's never ever so simple it's not black and white it's always it's 50 shades of grey <laughs> <laughs> yeah would you like to say something else? Um yes well to keep the discussion going we will put uh, the e our email address in the show notes and you can give us feedback if you have different opinions if you have seen if you have different evidence uh, we'd like to to hear from you and we will also post the uh, resources uh, we gathered or that our guests gathered yeah. uh, for this show so that's for today and we hope to see you next week thanks you a lot for listening see you Bye. next time